Good to be with you all today. Um, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's a good, good thing to have Jordan with us today. Grateful to have him here and pray for he and Jamie as they still continue to kind of work on fully transitioning here and need their house to sell. So just be in prayer for that. But we're grateful to have them willing to, to jump in and, and serve him with us. And I think they're excited to be here too. So uh, grateful for that. Well, um, I need to take some moments here to talk about this past week before I dive into the, the regularly planned sermon. So it's two sermons for the price of one, basically, today. But, but what happened this past Wednesday at, at the Capitol building uh, was absolutely uh, tragic uh, and unjustifiable. And, and by any stretch of the imagination, tragic, unjustifiable. What we witnessed wasn't a peaceful protest but a, a violent insurrection uh, to, our, to our democracy, to our government, right? That tragically cost five people's lives, including the life of one uh, Capitol Police officer. Uh, what made it worse is that as we watched that, we saw side-by-side -side signs saying, Jesus saves, and crosses, and, and Christian flags being carried alongside of Confederate flags, and, and people wearing neo-Nazi sweatshirts, symbols of, of hate, right? I, I want to be clear, clear that, that what I, I'm most concerned about and what I, why I want to talk about this is that I'm, I'm most concerned about not the government, but our church and, and the church universal, right? The church of Christ. That's what I'm most concerned about. And the scriptures are abundantly clear, friends, abundantly clear that we are not to put our hope in earthly princes, rulers, presidents, governing authorities, right? That, that's, not our, that's not our hope. Full stop. There's no like, you know, but or if or what. No, we are not to put our hope in earthly rulers. To attach your Christian hope to a political leader is idolatry. It's idolatry. It doesn't mean that we can't have political convictions. You should have political convictions, and I encourage you to, to voice those convictions and to vote those convictions, absolutely. But we need to hold those convictions with grace toward others who don't share all of our exact same political convictions. Now, if you've not been here for very long, hopefully a lot of you have been around for a little bit, right? And if, you've, if you hang around with us long enough, we, you will find out, if you listen to what we preach on Sundays here, over time, we are equal opportunity in offending both the political right and the political left. Equal opportunity in that. We have been from, from the beginning of this church. This isn't something we started this last year. We've been saying the same things since we started this church in 2012. Same things. Right? And so we unashamedly proclaim when we, we usually walk through books of the Bible, so we let the Bible dictate a lot of what we preach here, right? That's probably a good thing to do as a Christian. Uh, but, we, but we have unashamedly proclaimed that abortion is evil. It is murder. It is sin. It's wicked. Right? Unashamedly. We have proclaimed that the sexual revolution is evil, right? That the movement to deny our creation in God's image as male and female is wicked, it's false to deny in any way God's good creation of sex between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage in any way, shape, or form is sinful. To distort that in any way is sinful. We've said those things again and again throughout the years here. 
racism is also real, right? It's alive and well in 2021, uh, both personally and systemically. And it is satanic. It's of the devil. God has called us in his word to care about the poor and the marginalized, to share his heart for the poor and the marginalized, not to tell them to simply pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, but to come alongside, to care, to offer practical care, to meet needs in the name of Jesus. The pandemic is also real, right? We're nearing here in the the coming days, we're going to hit 400,000 people who have lost their lives just in the United States from the pandemic. And there are people, members of this body, who have family members and loved ones who are in the hospital fighting it right now. There are frontline care workers, healthcare workers in this church who are seeing people die daily, right? It's real. We are going to preach the gospel no matter what here, right? And where it offends either the political right or the political left, so be it. The thing that I am most concerned about is, is the church, right? The church is to be a light. The church is to be a city on a hill. A people united in the good news of Jesus Christ who are drawing others to Jesus through that unity and through their proclamation of the hope that we have in him. The gospel welcomes all kinds of people to Jesus. I don't see anywhere in Romans 10, right, call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved, right? It doesn't say, and vote this way, and look this way, and dress this way, and say these things the right way. It says, call in the name of Jesus. The gospel welcomes all kinds of people to Jesus and into his church, the poor and the marginalized, the educated and the wealthy, those who vote Republican, those who vote Democrat. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are called to be united as the body of Christ that we might glorify Jesus and reach others for his glory and their joy. We shared, uh, some of you are not covenant members, so you were not on our covenant member Zoom call last month, but we shared a, a strategic plan for the year kind of on that call. It has some kind of fresh wording to our vision, values, and mission. You can read all that stuff on the website, and you'll hear more about that in the days and, and months ahead. Uh, but, but for the first time in our history, we also uh, shared a theme for the year, a theme for the year. And maybe that's cheesy, I don't know, but we decided to do that. And the theme for this year that we are, we are trying to rally around in light of the gospel is one church, one mission. One church, one mission. The temptation that, that too many in the church broadly are, are sadly succumbing to is to more identify themselves, and this happens on both the right and the left, with a political tribe more than with Jesus and his gospel. It's wrong. That is no gospel, right? Adding to it. Friends, this is, this is not a time to blame shift, and this is not a time for finger pointing. It really isn't. It's not a time to attack. While, while the actions of those who, who rioted the Capitol and, and those who stirred them up to do so are, are inexcusable, unjustifiable, and wicked, that doesn't mean that every Republican or every person who voted for Trump is evil and racist. 
It doesn't mean that, right? To say that is not helpful right now. No more than it means that every person who voted for Biden is evil and supports the murder of the unborn. That's not helpful right now. And those that voted for neither of them, you know, we don't get to set up on some higher platform and just, I told you so to both of you, right? We don't get to do that. The church needs to come together, not politically, but around Jesus Christ, around Jesus. We need to be more about Jesus than we are about a party or a candidate or any cause. We need to to be the people rooted in Christ who, who put a stop to this anger, the finger pointing, the divisiveness, the yeah, but look what the other side did, nonsense. It only escalates the divisiveness in the bride of Christ. And even worse, defending sinful actions of people just because they're on, quote, our side makes us guilty of tribalism that has no place in the church. It is idolatry. It's idolatry. Now, now if you're struggling with this, right? You're struggling with what you've witnessed. You're struggling with what to think. I mean, we are hearing so much information and, and yeah, the news is biased on all sides. It, it comes at us from every angle, and not to mention the, the thousands, millions of voices on social media that bombard us on a daily assault. Right? If you're having trouble wrestling through that, let me invite you, come talk, right? Come talk to one of your pastors. We would love to talk with you. We're not going to condemn you for what you're thinking, what you're wrestling through with that, Right? Just like Jesus, we're going to welcome you, right? We're going to try to share his grace and welcome you into into that uh, as we visit with you. And we'll try to journey through this with you. Let's talk about it. Let's not just isolate ourselves in our social media bubbles and just blast all we want on the internet all the time. That's not going to be helpful, right? If you don't want to talk to a pastor, at least talk to a community group leader. You're in a community group. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to a brother or sister in your local church, face-to-face, who can help you talk through, wrestle through, think through some of these voices that you are hearing from the media and social media. If you see a brother or sister in this church posting something that you are concerned about, can I give you some advice? Please don't just like start blasting on each other's comments on, your, on, the, on the feed. It is not helpful for anyone, but rather reach out. Try to meet with them person to person, right? At least over the phone to talk to them. Ask them questions. Try to understand one another. Talk to them about why you're concerned about what you saw them post. But don't just like proliferate the, the, the fighting on social media. It is, it is not helpful in any way and it's damaging to our Christian witness. I want to ask you this question, right? Do you want to make a kingdom in impact? Do you really want to make a kingdom impact? Do you? Like that's, I'm not rhetorical right now. Do you? Right, the, the thing we need to do then is to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor. More than we want to post, more than we want to rally to our cause or our candidate, we need to go tell our unchurched, unbelieving neighbor about the good news of Jesus Christ that, that offers them and has offered us salvation from sin and death. To share that hope with them. Do you know what might, that what God might use to help multiply that impact? Living out the gospel in diverse and transformative community. 
in the church with people who look different from you, with people who vote different from you, right? And yet you love them. You love them. You accept them. You embrace them as brother, as sister. You don't have to agree with them, with one another all the time. We don't have to agree on all of our politics, right? But you learn to love one another and to extend the grace that you've been shown toward one another. My prayer is that we would be a church increasingly united in this year and increasingly united on our real mission, our real mission, which isn't to secure elections, but is to share the hope of Jesus Christ with a world that needs to hear it. Jesus himself says this when he's put on trial by Pontius Pilate, John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. We need to take our cue from Jesus and be about his kingdom. And and, and may we pray for unity. In fact, will you join me in a prayer for that right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Would you fix our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, help us to see you right now, seated at the Father's right hand, welcoming us and praying for us right now. Help us to see you reigning over this world of chaos, very much at work, very much in control. We pray by your spirit that you would clothe us in your love, your compassion, your kindness, your humility, your gentleness and patience. Holy Spirit, help us to be a people who bear with one another in love. People who forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. May the mercy and grace that we have found in you, Jesus, be more real than ever and easier to share with one another and the lost world around us. Bind us in unity with you, Lord, and with one another. Help us embody your love, your patience, and your grace in every way. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still have a sermon to preach. I hope that's okay. Uh, And thankfully, it's a lighthearted text. And that is, my friends, my spiritual gift of sarcasm coming out for you. Uh, But a difficult text at least deserves a somewhat lighthearted introduction, especially after that, right? After all, it's a a new year, January, uh, or uh, more accurately, as my friend Ronnie Martin uh, dubbed it once, uh, Saduary, right? What do I mean by Saduary, right? Following a season of feasting and plentiful, delicious baked goods galore available at all hours of the day from Thanksgiving through Christmas, right? Annually, this month of January becomes a month for me of seeking to undo the weight gains of the holiday season and kind of getting back on track with a, with a disciplined diet. No more cookies and cakes in their place comes lots of veggies and lean proteins, right? No more cookies, just broccoli, right? And that, friends, is very, very sad, right? It's sad. It's saduary. That's why it's saduary. That's why it should be called that. Uh, saduary is a painful and sorrowful month. It is. Uh, there's, there's little joy 
for me in kind of course correcting my eating habits rather strictly for a, a few weeks here so I can return to more of a maintenance mode of living a somewhat healthy life, I hope. Uh, but, but it's not sorrowful without a purpose, right? It's not sorrowful without a purpose. There is an end goal that makes it worth it. In the end, it's for my good, right? That's at least what I keep trying to tell myself as I press through. Uh, that's the way that like, it is with any sort of discipline or training. If you want to lose some weight, right, you have to suffer a little bit. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to cut yourself off from certain foods, or you're going to have to exercise more, or probably ideally both of those things, right? It probably won't be real pleasant in the moment, but if you stick to it, there's joy, right, that comes when you reach your goal. You start to feel better, whatever it is. If you want to run a race, people tell me I don't like to run just for the sake of running. Uh, it's not my favorite thing to do, but people tell me if you want to run a race, right, the training isn't always pleasant. Uh, but if you stick to it, there's a, a joy that comes from, from finishing that half marathon, that marathon, that Ironman, whatever it is that you crazy people like to do. Uh, you, you've worked so hard, you, you get the reward. I've, I've accomplished it. If you want to play the piano, you want to learn to play the guitar, right? Or any musical instrument, right? Playing scales is not the most enjoyable thing all the time. It's not always the most exciting thing to do, but over time, that discipline yields the fruit of freedom musically. To be able to play whatever song, the songs that you want to play, that, that, that bring you joy. In so many ways, we need discipline in our lives for our health, for our joy, and for our ultimate good. That's what we see in our text today, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. I invite you to stand with me, open your Bibles. And uh, for the reading of, of God's word. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray by your Spirit. That even in this difficult passage, you would open our hearts to hear your loving kindness for us, your grace towards us, your desire to, to work good in our lives, even through painful, painful suffering and difficult discipline. We pray that we would be shaped by your love, that we would endure faithfully to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen. You may have a seat. This is a difficult passage, a hard word here. One of, one of the reasons that we like to preach through books of the Bible here at Redeemer is that it forces us to, to deal with difficult passages like this and not just kind of cherry pick and choose uh, the passages that we like, that, that say good things all the times to us and the ways that we like to hear them. We, we need to hear all of God's word so we, we don't get to skip over it this way. To get the full weight of what's being said here, we, we once again need to really remember the context of this book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about before, is, is really much less of a book or even a letter. It's more like a sermon. It's a sermon, right, that is being preached to a group of first century Jewish Christians who are suffering under intense persecution. Right? So much so that, that some of them are being tempted to drop out of the race of the Christian life. As the author describes in the opening verses of, of this chapter, they are, they are tempted to quit, uh, to escape the suffering, to just bow out of the faith, to, to, to ease the pain. The whole book is meant to encourage them to press on, uh, clinging to Jesus in, in, in faith. But the specific encouragement here doesn't feel like very much like American Christianity's uh, view of encouragement. Uh, we live in the world of basically this kind of Christianity, right? This kind of encouragement. Be faithful, sweetie, and Jesus will just bless your socks off, right? That's what he's going to do for you, right? If you cling to Jesus, life will be easy. Things will go your way. It's all going to work out. But here's what the preacher of Hebrews says in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, shedding your blood, Right? Now, this isn't a general struggle against sin that he's kind of referring to. Whose sin is, are they struggling with specifically? It's not their sin. It's other people. Other people are persecuting them. It's others' sin against them. And, and what's the encouragement? Take heart. You haven't died yet. Right? It's like, thanks for the pep talk, bro. I appreciate that. Uh, but that's the encouragement. People... They are literally beating you down in their sin against you. But you haven't shed your blood and died like Jesus did yet. You might. I mean, that's a key word here. You might. It gets worse. Verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do you see what just happened here? The preacher of Hebrews is saying that ultimately God is sovereign over their suffering, over the sins of others against them, over the, the persecution that they're enduring, over the suffering that they're enduring. God is sovereign over it. God is allowing it to happen and even using it to train them and discipline them. God has a purpose behind their suffering, and he's designed it to use it for their good in their lives. Now, this is not the, if you trust God, good things will happen to you kind of Christianity that we're so often taught in our world. But you see, this is actually biblical Christianity, right? This is biblical faith, and it's a hard but no less true word that we have here. Right? No one wants to hear, hey, life's hard, God is spanking you right now, and it's for your good. No one wants to hear that. 
No one is putting that on a bumper sticker or a refrigerator magnet or making a t-shirt that says that. Somebody might get an idea today to do that now. Uh, but, but the truth is God is sovereign over all. He's absolutely sovereign over all. The good and the bad. He rules over all. And he has a purpose for the good and the bad that we walk through in life. He has a design in it. And he uses it to train us, to discipline us. And for the Christian, that he uses it ultimately for our good. Some of us want to go through life like the kid who is watching the movie that only wants to see the happy parts and skips all the, the difficult scenes, right? right? We only want to see Harry Potter defeating the evil Lord Voldemort. We don't want to see all the pain and, and loss that Harry has to go through in order to get there. But that's not reality. If Jesus, our Savior and Lord, faced suffering, then we should certainly expect that we will suffer at times too. In fact, he promises us in the word. He tells us himself, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But like Jesus, the author of Hebrews doesn't just leave us with the bad news that we will have trouble. He also gives us hope and meaningful encouragement for how to endure it, how we might lean into it, uh, into the Lord's discipline and be better for it. He gives us three means here for enduring and persevering in the face of painful suffering and discipline. We are to remember God's word, remember God's care, and remember God's purpose. First, we are to remember God's word. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is doing here in, in, in verses five and six, right? He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He, and then he's gonna quote some scripture, right? The preacher's question here, though, is, is making the point subtly that not everyone who hears or reads God's word gives their full attention and devotion to it. Sometimes it's in one ear and right out the other, quickly forgotten. It's more than possible for us to, to sort of drift away from the teaching of God's word by our lack of attentiveness to it. So how much more so if, if we never bother to read it in the first place for ourselves? But the preacher here asks this question and then proceeds to, to give a reference and a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And, and in that quote, we see three different responses people might have to the Lord's discipline, right? Some people regard it lightly, right? They're, they're indifferent to it. And, and so they sort of just ignore it. They dismiss the reality that, that God is sovereignly at work in their lives. There's a, there's a reality that God may have something vitally important to say to us that, that we might not be able to hear or receive without the pain, without the suffering, without the hardship that we're going through. Something we, we might not be able to hear or receive as easily if everything was always just going smooth and easy for us. When our idols come crashing down, it's painful. Whether those idols are political idols, your family, you know, your spouse, your kids, your relationship the acceptance and approval of others, your comfort. When those idols come crashing down, it's painful. But if we never felt that pain, if we never felt that pain, we might not understand that it is Jesus alone that we must be our hope, that we must put our trust in him for our rescue, for our satisfaction, 
We must not be indifferent and re- regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That's one way. The second way, some people instead become overwhelmed by suffering and they grow weary when reproved by God. Because of the, the ways we've been so wrongly taught in the, in the American church, we, we really need to hear this one too, right? Because we've been taught that if you draw near to the Lord, he only blesses you. If you have enough faith, your problems will leave you. That sort of bad, false teaching, uh, because of that, right, we're in real danger that when the Lord disciplines us, we just get overwhelmed to the point where we're just completely despondent. It discourages us to, to a point where we're paralyzed by thoughts like this. God must hate me to let this happen in my life right now. He must be against me. He must have abandoned me. But this isn't true. This isn't true, Christian. The God who disciplines and tests us is also the God who helps us, who's there with us in our hardship. The God who draws near to us in in our sins and suffering, that's who he is. He's not repelled by us, but rather he moves toward us and draws us to himself. The cross boldly proclaims this to us. In our sin and wickedness, God didn't wash his hands and just leave us to rot. No, the Father sends the Son for us. Jesus willingly comes for us. And and verse two, for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross for us to pay our debt of sin in our place, that he might bring us in, not push us away. We can't respond this way, becoming so overwhelmed that we just become despondent. But rather, as Christians, we respond in the third way here, to rejoice in our sufferings that the Lord brings into our lives, knowing that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to put on a bunch of fake Christian smiles on our face about everything in our life all the time and pretend like everything's just awesome, Right? like the Lego movie. Everything is not awesome, right? It's, it's not. Right? We don't need to put a cheery you know, smile on our face and say, guess what, guys? I just lost my job today. Isn't that great? How awesome. Or praise Jesus, the doctor said it was cancer. That's stupid, right? Why would we respond like that? It's dumb. No one is helped by acting fake and pretending that everything is always going perfectly in your life all the time especially when the bottom is falling out. But rather, I think what it means to rejoice in our sufferings is that even in the face of great adversity, we don't lose hope, right? That we are not driven to despair, but rather we cling to the very real hope that we have in Jesus. We may not have a smile on our face while we're doing it, but we cling to it. How? How do you do that? Well, it begins by remembering God's word. And in God and his word, he tells us things like this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's not unlike what what Joseph says when reunited with his brothers that sold him into slavery in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, brothers, dear brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
You meant evil, but God meant that evil for good. He used that evil. He designed that evil for the good of many others. It was painful, but it was for good in the end, ultimately. We can remember God's word to the Apostle Paul and his own, his own suffering in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Again and again, God's word reminds us of God's presence in our suffering, his sovereign goodness at work, even in our hardship. But here's the thing. It's really hard to remember God's word if you don't first read God's word. Right, Brilliant, right? Like, oh, I can't believe that's the way that works. But yes, that's how that works. You can't remember something if you haven't read it or listened to it or let it soak into your life. It's so vital for as believers that we are people of the word, that we are people who are daily in God's word for ourselves, not just on Sundays, not just when we gather for community group, but day by day, we are reading God's word so that we might remember it and apply it and dwell in it and, and find comfort from it, be changed by it. You might be reminded of God's goodness even in hard things, reminded of his sufficient grace, reminded that he meets us and is available to us in our time of need. One of the best things that you can do is lean into the discipline of the Lord by engaging in the discipline of reading the Bible daily. Right? Reading the Bible daily. Reading through the entire Bible over the course of this year. We're at the start of the year. It's okay. You can still do it. Right? If you haven't started, read through the Bible over the course of the year. 15 to 20 minutes a day, and you can read the whole Bible in a year. The whole thing, day by day. And there's so many great reading plans. If you need help finding one, we'll, we'll help you out. There's great resources. The, there's the everyday Bibles that even put all the readings together for you so you don't have to, you could be lazy and not even have to flip back and forth from the chapters in the Bible, right? It's just all put there for you to read as you, as you go. But we need to be in the word that we might remember God's word, that it might sustain us in, in our suffering. We also need to remember God's care. That's what we're being pointed to in verses seven through nine. He says here, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? God is our perfect heavenly father. And through faith in Christ, he adopts us as his beloved children. And the logic follows. What father doesn't discipline their kids? Right? What father that loves their kids doesn't discipline their kids? The answer implied is only a terrible father who doesn't love his children would not discipline his kids. The fact that, that God disciplines us is a sign of God's love and care for us. But again, we're kind of groomed in this, hey, everything needs to go my way culture that we live in, that discipline is a sign of wrath, of God's wrath. He's against me, right? He's punishing me. He's out to get me. That's why he's allowing these hard things to happen in my life. God does have wrath, friends. He does. But I think the more terrifying thing about God's wrath is that his wrath doesn't really work the way that we expect it to work. Look at Romans chapter 1. If you want to flip there in your Bible real quick and, and stay here uh, with one finger and flip back there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right, so this passage here in Romans 1, starting verse 18 down through 32, is talking about how God's wrath is revealed against those who suppress the truth of God in the world, right? Those who reject and deny God and his goodness. How his wrath is revealed. Listen to the language. Skip down to verse 28 through 30 here, 32. Listen to this language here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, which always, I just can't, I have to stop every time that, that this is in the list, like inventors of evil and then disobedient of parents. They're breaking curfew. Right, that's in the list. Uh, foolish, heart, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That they, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, do not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's a weighty passage. But the language here of God pouring out his wrath on those who deny him, suppressing the truth throughout Romans chapter one is this giving them up to their sinful desires, giving them over to the sin that they want, right? In other words, God shows his wrath to sinners outside of his mercy by doing nothing, by letting them have what they want. Here you go. And that's a wrath, I think, that's far more frightening than a God who's waiting to punish you, right? To, waiting to drop the hammer on you anytime you're, you're out of line. God shows his wrath by doing nothing. But he shows his care and, and his love by disciplining his children. And his loving discipline comes in a variety of forms, just like it does from our earthly parents, right? Sometimes the discipline is corrective, a good father corrects his children when they need it. Now, sometimes we are kind of a little lazy with this, right? Whether it's because in our culture we, we're more concerned about being our kid's friend or, or because we're just lazy and to actually correct our kids is gonna cause me to sacrifice my comfort and my desires for a few moments while I try to correct them. But a good parent corrects their children. They have to, right? Otherwise, they will never grow, right, toward maturity. Uh, right? Your children will remain immature, undeveloped, childish, permanently. Right? Kids don't just hit an age, just like the new year, right? We thought, oh, 2020 is over. It's going to be magically better. Guess what? There's no magic switch at the end on midnight of January 1st that suddenly everything's wonderful and great again. It doesn't work that way. Same thing with your kids. They're not going to turn 18 and suddenly, suddenly just be lovely, wonderful adults. It doesn't happen that way. It takes correction. Sometimes discipline is, is preventative, right? If a good, father, a good father doesn't wait for his kid to like just go play out in the busy street and see what happens before he, he says, hey, don't do that, right? A good parent says, no, stop. Stay out of the road. You get killed out there. It's preventative. Sometimes discipline is formative, training, equipping. Right? Fathers who love their children 
don't just give orders to their kids. But they encourage. They encourage our response by the quality of their love. And by their presence, they're showing us how. They're, they're doing all within their power to help us. And same with God. The preacher of Hebrews says to us that our, our earthly fathers disciplined us in these ways as best they could in their flawed human ways, and we respected them. Now, my kids are getting older. I have a, you know almost 19-year-old, uh, 16-year-old, and a soon-to-be 13-year-old. We're going to have three teenagers in our house next month pray for us. Uh, well, at least one of them will be moving back out of the house hopefully next month uh, to go back to the campus. So we'll be down to two in the house. Still pray for us. But, um, but right, like I think about on my parenting through the years and, and sadly, friends, I've failed in so many ways, right? Sometimes I've, I've been overly harsh, overly strict, overly corrective and demanding. Sometimes I have just given orders. Sometimes I've punished the wrong kid. Sometimes I've not done enough and I've been too lazy to intervene when I should. Right. That's the thought of all of us. And we think about our own parents and their failings and their shortcomings. Right? But that's the kind of the heart here, right? Earthly parents, earthly fathers, they discipline the best they can and it's imperfect. Even the best ones, it's imperfect. Some of us have terrible ones. And we've suffered at their hands. Even the best Parents fail, and yet we respect them, right? At the end, we, we didn't always like it. We certainly complained about it at times as kids. We, we grumbled about it. But most of us in the end, we respect our parents for what they tried to do, right? For the, doing the best that they could. By that logic, then, we're told here, we should give ourselves completely over to the discipline of our perfect heavenly Father. We should submit to him in every way. Right? It's interesting here in verse 9 that we're told that if we do this, we will live. We will live. Think back on Genesis 3, our first parents in the garden. They were told that if they disobeyed God's word, his one commandment to not eat from that tree, knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And by failing to submit to the Father of spirits, our perfect heavenly Father, they brought spiritual death upon themselves and all of their descendants. God desires that we would submit ourselves to his perfect loving discipline and live and live. In our suffering, we must remember God's care. How can we do that? Spending some time each day in silence and solitude, reflective prayer, allowing the Spirit, to, to speak to our spirit and assure us that we are children of God, Romans chapter 8. That we are God's beloved child. To just sit in that day by day and be assured of even in the, the good things, the hard things that are happening in our life, God loves us. He's for us. He's with us. We need to remember God's word. We need to remember God's care. And last week, we are to remember God's purpose. The encouragement that is woven throughout this difficult passage is this. Christian, brother, sister, in your pain and your hardship, you are not being treated as an enemy or a slave. You are being treated as a child of God that God dearly loves. The real question is, will you believe that? Will you believe it? Will you take God at his word? And not just today, because let's be honest, for many of us today, 
Today is not a hard day for you or me, for a lot of us. Today may not be the real day of suffering for you. For some of you, it may be. But for a lot of us, it's not. But what about on the day when real suffering, real persecution comes your way? Real hardship, real pain. What will you believe then? Will you trust the Lord? Or will you put him on trial and prosecute him with all sorts of accusations about how he's against you? The Lord will probably not tell you in the moment. He doesn't usually tell us in the moment why it's happening now, why it's happening to you. But he has told you and me all we need to know. It is the loving care of a perfect, all-knowing, all-wise father for his beloved child. Will you trust him? But he's even willing to tell us a little bit more here at the end, verses 10 and 11. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here God tells us that that he has a glorious purpose in our, our suffering and pain. He disciplines us for our good. Not arbitrarily, not like on a whim, but intentionally for our good. As a perfect heavenly father, he could not possibly introduce any form of discipline into your life that would be of no real help for you. It will only in the end be for your good. Even more, he disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. That we might become more like Jesus, more dependent upon the Holy Spirit like Jesus. More deeply devoted to living for God's glory like Jesus. God disciplines us not to drive us away, but to draw us more deeply into him. And ultimately, this temporary pain yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Faith in Christ, it immediately justifies us, right? We are declared righteous in God's sight. It clothes us in the perfection of Christ. That's not the righteousness that's being talked about here. It's not talking about that objective righteousness that comes immediately by faith. But rather, it's talking about a subjective, day-by-day righteous life. Increasingly displaying the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, more and more in your life. There's a harvest of righteousness that comes and there's also a harvest of peace. I love this verse from Isaiah 32, 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Peace, right? The Hebrew word, shalom, which Kyle talked about this some last week too, but it means so much more than just the word peace that we translate it to in English. Shalom really means wholeness. It means things as they should be. It means things as God designed them to be and become in their fullness, in their wholeness. Really, it means to experience right now as you experience peace, a harvest of peace in your life increasingly, it means to experience a little bit of restoration of the the new creation here and now, right? To to have a foretaste of what is to come, a real taste of it, a real experience of it. And you you can't experience that kind of shalom 
that kind of peace by trying to avoid and deny and fight off all the hard things in your life. You can't. You can only experience that level of peace by accepting them as discipline from the Lord. Will you take him at his word? Right? Will you believe that he is good and that he cares? Will you trust that he has purpose in what he is doing? Remember God's word. Remember his care. Remember his purpose. And remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember that he left the comforts of heaven to come and enter into the hardships of this life for you. Remember that he was tempted in every way that you are, yet without sin. You haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood, but he did. He did. Remember that for the joy that was set before him, he moved toward suffering and endured the cross in your place. The son of God who spoke all things into existence at creation moved toward you in your sin and suffering and and suffered for you that he might rescue you, that he might make you God's beloved child. Remember that Jesus was resurrected, victorious over sin and death. Remember that he ascended and he is seated right now at the Father's right hand where he intercedes for you. You have in Jesus right now one who fully understands anything, everything you could possibly go through and will always be with you and will always be for you through anything you might face. Remember Jesus and trust him and find hope and peace that might enable you to endure faithfully to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray that that you would enable us to, to see your loving care even in the hard things of life. Help us to remember your son who who suffered in our place more than we could ever comprehend. By your spirit, help us to trust him even in the midst of suffering that we might endure. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.